Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History, I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fighting on Film. This week we have a supporting cast pick. Each month we give our supporting Patreons, the supporting cast, the opportunity to pick one of the films that we're going to cover. And this week, finally, Hornblower's won. I've been putting Hornblower into the pick for like the last three, four months now. And every every time it's just been pipped at the post. And I know that there's a select few people that have been voting that have been hoping for Hornblower almost as much as I have. Yeah. So finally, we're covering 1951's Captain Hornblower RN. Absolutely smashed the smashed the vote this month. I think it it's the first one to get double figures in a vote. It was almost becoming a meme at this point. It, it wasn't up against some of the greatest of the genre, I must admit, but it, it gave a fair fight, I think. Absolutely. It's nice to cover a different type of war film as well. It is. So yeah, we we run those every month. So um if you guys want to get involved and support the show, that's a great way of doing it. Yeah. Um, you, you get a vote and there's lots of other pecs on there as well. So you can find out more about that on our website, uh, fightingonfilm.com. But without further ado, we need to launch into one of the best swashbuckling films I think has ever been made. I love this film. Just quickly, the, the elevator pitch for this one is an action-packed film of the adventures of Captain Hornblower during the Napoleonic Wars on the high seas. Yeah, that's pretty succinct. That's that's the movie. It's uh, It follows... Broadly, the plot of three uh, C.S. Forrester books um, from the Hornblower series, which were big books back in the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, and they endure today. Uh, mm. I, I read, all, I think, almost all of them uh, as a kid. Loved the uh, ITV A&E, uh, Ewan Grifford-fronted uh, TV series that they made in the late 90s, early 2000s. That was, that was great. 
this this is one of those films I think I probably watched first with my granddad, like on a right, like on a Saturday Sunday afternoon. Um, and as a kid, it just enthralled me. It's it just seemed so huge, you know, in scale and and the story. Mm. Um, it just captured my imagination and it stood up. Like I've watched it probably dozens of times now over the years. Um, and it's still just I I watched it again last night and I I thought this is still I still enjoy this as much as I did probably the the first time I saw it. It's just one of those enduring films that's also linked to a memory of my granddad, which is lovely. I mean, you might not know Matt, but I've never seen any Hornblower ever. Never seen any of it. Didn't read the books when I was younger, but I've only ever heard good things. And I love C.S. Forrester's work. So I was. Oh God! I mean, how many of his books and, this and short stories have been adapted into really great films? Yeah, except like Greyhound very recently. Yeah, exactly. Well, now now you know it's good stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I did. I always knew it was good. Like people have, <laughs> people always say, "Oh, Hornblower is one of those." It's something that I think captures you when you're young. I know there's a few. You know, people that we know that we we've had on the show that, that do cite Hornblower as a as a childhood favourite of theirs. So it must it, it must endure, and it, I think it does. And this is this movie is a, a proper Technicolor classic. So yeah, Matt, tell us about the production. Well, it was a Warner Brothers production. Uh, it had a budget of about two point four million, which is big money at the time in nineteen fifty one. And when Warner Brothers acquired the the rights to three Hornblower novels, uh, Happy Return, which was known as Peter Quarters in the US. Um, a Ship of the Line and Flying Colors. And they all take place between about 1808 and 1810. So it's in the middle of his career. He's now a captain. He's got his own ship. If you're familiar with the, the TV series from the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, that kind of covers his early career where he's a midshipman and a lieutenant. And what, what they've decided to do with the film was turn it into a big budget, swashbuckling technical epic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Rob will talk about this a bit more when we get into cast, but they, they had... Errol Flynn in mind. Um, so yep. they brought on board uh, Raoul Walsh, who had directed a lot of um, uh, Flynn movies up to this mm. point. He'd worked with him on uh, They Died With Their Boots On and Objective Burma, which we've covered. Um, yep. Yeah, so Raoul Walsh was brought on as the director and he's got a long and storied career spanning the silent era right into the 60s. Uh, did Dark Command, High Sierra, uh, Fighter Squadron, Distant Drums, um, Naked in the Dead, um, A Distant Trumpet, lots and lots of um, military and cowboy films and all sorts. He, he was a very diverse director. The cinematography on this one was uh, was done by uh, Guy Green. He was the director on uh, the movie we covered last week, wasn't he? Sea of Sand, yeah. And this comes more or less smack dab towards the end of, of Guy Green's uh, period as a as a go-to cinematographer so he worked on things like the way ahead and great expectations uh worked a lot with uh david lean um before that he'd been a camera up on in which we serve and he'd worked on what of our aircraft is missing um and he's just one of the you know the the great british um cinematographers and directors of, of the period and this film beautifully shot in technicolor you get a real sense of scale the model work on it is is super impressive so I, I did a little bit of digging to try and find out who did the model work on this, because I know this is something we'll come back to and, and talk about later on. But the, the special effects were um, were done by a team that included Harry Barn Dollar, uh, Arthur Rhodes, uh, Cliff Richardson, who has a really interesting career. He worked on everything from Red Beret to African Kare- uh, Queen. He also worked on Sea of Sand as well. So wow. another nice little link. Uh, he worked on The Sea Shall Not Have Them, Lawrence of Arabia. 
the Dirty Dozen, which you may have may have heard that we covered, I think, in December. <laughs> I think Christ, we did that yeah. one. Um, Battle of Britain, <laughs> uh, Young Winston, Zeppelin. So that the, these special effects guys have had storied careers too. Oh, of course. But the uh, I think the uh, the miniatures and the model work was headed up by uh, George Blackwell, who uh, worked on Ice Cold and Alex, the Yangtze incident, which we've covered. A uh, Master of Life and Death, The Way Ahead, and he did the model work for Angels 1-5 as well, which was earlier on in, oh, wow. uh, in there. I think he was the, the chap responsible for the, the great model work um, towards the end of the movie. It's incredible, isn't it? The technical advisor was uh, Commander Ivo Thomas Clark, OBE Royal Navy, retired. And he was also the advisor on In Which We Serve as well. And he okay. was a destroyer captain during during the war, and he he got a mention in dispatches for uh, operations off Norway. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. So pedigree pedigree advice. Mm. So not only was he the technical advisor on the movie, but also you had um, you had, I believe, uh, C.S. Forrester himself was was involved, and he was um, giving some direction because what he did was he took those three novels I mentioned, and he sort of condensed them into a form where they they work as a a condensed movie. Yeah. yeah. He basically did a bit of a treatment. And then uh, Ivan Goff and, uh, and as um, Mackenzie took over and wrote the screenplay. Um, Mackenzie wrote some of uh, Flynn's biggest movies, uh, Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex uh, in 1939 and uh, The Dad with the Boots on. Um, he worked on a couple of other war movies that are interesting, like Fighting Seabees and uh, Back to the Town, which are both um, John Wayne movies. They are. Um, so, yeah, it, it's got a really interesting production. Um, it was edited by Jack Harris, who edited dozens of films, lots of classics, alongside David Lean and, and Guy Green. And the music was by Robert Farnan, um, who was a, a Canadian composer. And during the war, he was kind of like the Canadian equivalent of Glenn Miller. A little link that you'll like, Rob. Uh, he uh, composed a lot of the music for Secret Army. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. <laughs> yeah, great. So, yeah, I mean, that rounds out um, pretty much the, the production side of things. Um, mm. um, we'll come back to that great model work later, I think. How they made the ships look like, look like they were moving and things like that. It's a great one. Some of the most authentic, realistic-looking sailing ship model work i've seen yeah like when you compare it to stuff like some of flynn's swashbucklers and some of the other you know uh late 30s 40s swashbuckling pirate movies like captain blood and 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 stuff like that this is it's really impressive it's up there so i think that leads us into cast so hornblower himself captain horatio hornblower is played by gregory peck now He's, you know, one of the golden era stars of, of Hollywood, isn't he? He's yeah. synonymous with films like Cape Fear and and obviously he plays Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. But he's no stranger to the war movie, as we as we know here. So 12 o'clock high. And then a few years later, in the 50s, he is uh, in Pork Chop Hill. Yeah, that's, that's going to be a great one to cover. Not playing a role, really, that I think we associate with Peck. No, it's... It's not become one of his classic iconic roles, like no. Um, yeah, it's he's great at it. I think mm. he's good in it, and he's doing a um a good job with the characterization that he's been given. Um, but yeah, yeah it's interesting, isn't it? Because he was obviously, as as you mentioned in your production notes, um, the film was originally developed for Errol Flynn, but mm. coming off of 1948's Don Juan, 
the movie didn't do very well. Uh, I think Flynn's star was bur- was burning out a little bit. Mm, sadly. And the objective Burma debacle over here in the UK might not have flown very well coming off of that. He just wasn't chosen for this one. But Lancaster was put up um, as well um, by Warner Brothers, but they thought that he might not be able to play this sort of character. So Peck got the role, and I think he does a pretty good job. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing with, with Lancaster is around this time, he, he was great in uh, a film called the, the, the Crimson Pirate, which is a very physical role, almost gymnastic. When you compare the two films, they just don't... There's, there's, I don't think that at that point in his career that Lancaster could have pulled off the non-bravado-based elements of yes. Hornblower's character. So Hornblower's character is very anti-hero in, in a lot of ways, whereas he's not a straightforward swashbuckling hero like say captain aubrey is of the the, the uh, patrick o'brien books yeah. he's he's more unsure of himself internally mm-hmm. but his drive to be a good officer and do his duty kind mm-hmm. of mitigates that and he's seen externally as being this highly competent captain and commander but internally he's got a lot of self-doubt because this is only you know it's a condensed form of three very you know significant novels they, they can't show a lot of that self-doubt. There's no internal monologues where he's, he's like speaking to himself or he's doubting himself. So the most we get with Peck's characterization is that guffaw and the, you know, yeah, the when he's anxious yeah. or, or feeling a little bit awkward when he, when he meets uh, officers and uh, senior officers and, and, and Lady Barbara as well. I think Peck does a great job with, with what he's got. Um, he's fun in the role, I think. Like, he is. I do enjoy him as Hornblow. Yeah, I think yeah. he pulls it off. There's, I mean, there's no trait of a, of a of a British accent there, but I think it's forgivable. Um, yeah, which I think it's quite funny. There's, I mean, but, there's a lot of that going on. Peck's co-star was Virginia Mayo. She played Lady Barbara Wellesley, and she mm-hmm. was no stranger to um, working with Raoul Walsh. Uh, she was in Colorado Territory um, in uh, 1949, so she, she'd worked with him before. And she was a big star uh, at Warner Brothers at the time. So she was... Yeah, the, the biggest leading lady at the biggest time, Biggest leading lady, she? yeah. And there's a bit of a hoo-ha behind the scenes of who was going to play Wellesley. I did see a little bit about that, and they were, they were looking at some British actresses. I think really the, the, the thing that, that, that got her the role was the fact that she was the, the most box office uh, female lead they had on Warner Brothers books at the time. And with studio contracts and, and how films were made back then it, it makes more it makes sense you know you put your biggest female star up on against one of your rising stars to help yeah absolutely see the movie i think that's how it probably would work for me yeah she's playing yeah. a character um which is in the novels obviously she play they play off each other quite well yeah they do she's a character that doesn't exist in in history um no. wellington didn't have a, a sister called barbara and it one thing that, that I will point out is that everyone calls him the Duke of Wellington, but the film's set in like 1808, 1807. <laughs> He's not there um, yet. <laughs> so he wasn't he wasn't even a Viscount until no. 1809, and he wasn't a Duke until uh, 1814. No, not yet. So, yeah, so he isn't quite the Duke of Wellington. He would have been <laughs> Sir Arthur Wellesley. Yes, of course. Yeah, she's not Barbara Wellington, was she? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how periodism no. and all that kind of thing works, but yeah, definitely not. Bring out the rest of the cast. We've got... First Lieutenant William, was it Lieutenant or is it Lieutenant? Left, the Royal Navy Rob. I always get bollocks for saying it wrong. <laughs> His first Lieutenant William Bush, played by Robert Beatty, 
Uh, he was in Matter of Life and Death, had a small role in that one. First of the few, he's uncredited in that. And he ends up in Where Eagles Dare later on in his career, um, which I think is quite a nice little uh, connection. Uh, we have uh, Second Lieutenant Gerard, played by Terence Morgan. Lieutenant Elvis. Yeah, Lieutenant Elvis, yeah. <laughs> He's very, he, does, he does have a, a quite the resemblance. Just a little bit, yeah. And this is only his third critic going into this movie. So oh, really? He's quite good, actually. I quite like him. Mm. And then we have uh, Seaman Quist, uh, played by the imposing James Robertson Justice. Now, he's just one of those proper character actors. He himself was actually in the Royal Naval uh, Volunteer Reserve in the Second World War. He was wounded when his ship hit a mine and he was honourably discharged with a pension. So he's no stranger to the sea. Before all of that, he fought in the Spanish Civil War against Franco and he was a policeman for the League of Nations. So he had quite the um, career before he became an yeah, actor. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. He really is. He was in a lot of great movies, and yeah. I think he, I think he died in bank, you know, bankrupt. He got ill in it, it, it wrecked yeah. him financially. A, bit of a um, tragic end, really. But yeah, a fantastic actor, and he's so imposing in this. And I think he plays the role really, really well. Isn't he the admiral that sends uh, Gregory Peck and Stanley Baker to take out the guns and have our own? That's it. It's Commodore Jensen. Yeah, as you just mentioned, Stanley Baker. There, Stanley Baker is in this film. He plays uh, Mr. Harrison, and he's. I think he's playing Bennett from the Cruel Sea two years before he gets that role he hangs around longer though and at least he's been able to yeah. use his real voice in this <laughs> yeah he's not and he doesn't like fall from a mizzen top or something <laughs> yeah he's not he's not he doesn't get overdubbed like he was in the red beret and also he no. goes on to play child in zulu and you know we know baker's career after he's so famous after this movie but apparently this film was a, a shot in the arm um apparently he was struggling for for roles and after this run after this role after this movie came out he, he never worried for work again apparently so oh wow okay it helped his career and then there's just there's a few little bit parts um we've got alec mango who plays el supremo he's a, a british actor probably best known for playing el supremo actually in this film um yeah he turns up in uh, they who dare with um dirt bogard and um oh is it is it arim tarikoff arim tarimoff yeah, yeah, Tarimov, I mean, yeah. yeah, he's in that one too. Um, but yeah, he hasn't got many um, war movie credits to his name, but it's a nice, it's an interesting little role there, little mm. playing like this megalomaniac, yeah, dictator-esque yeah. character. Latin American mm. proto-dictator that's going to uh, take on the Spanish for the British in South America and, and divert their attention. Yeah, seize and burn El Salvador. Thinks he's a um, god sort of thing, doesn't he? He he does a good job. He he pulls off the the manic, insane um, mm. power gone to his head dictator. Uh, yeah. I love the little Macbeth esque bit at the end where he's in that room in the in in the fort at, at the end of the meeting of uh, him and Peck, where yeah. he puts the crown on. Yeah, that's good. Um, and he has a little moment to himself. Mm. It's good. And then and then the lastly um, for cast with who, anyone of real any real merit for me. Um, Christopher Lee as the Spanish, yeah. as the, is it the Navidad? He's the captain of the Natividad. Natividad. The 60-gun uh, um, ship of the line that yeah. they have to capture. Christopher Lee doesn't have a lot to do in this film. It's, no, it's cockle it shell heroes levels of, of work, minutes. isn't it? He has a yeah. great little bit of um, swordplay with Peck on the, the, the quarter deck of the Natividad. Yes, really nice. But he's overdubbed in Spanish, which is interesting because they decided not to do that with El Supremo character or the Spanish uh, captain who comes aboard later. They don't overdub him until he speaks. 
um, to to Lee, um, and then he speaks in Spanish to him, which is interesting. So he he's slightly um, made up to look a little bit more um, dark, darkly complexion. Well, it's blackface, isn't it? It's blackface. It is. It's a, it's a little bit, yeah. And yeah. and of, of course, um, hasn't Mango aged very is well. El Supremo is yeah very very much That's so um, very well either so, yeah yeah it's a shame it's a shame they couldn't you know find a um a south american or or mm. latino um actor for that role which, you know the worst we'll just have in the them, 50s we'll just have them play them as they are as people yes it's yeah you, know, you don't need to you know no. that's a whole other um <laughs> that's a whole other it is. That's a, that's a, yeah, it really it is. is but no it's i, I think it's interesting because it's the only it's the only film where you can see Atticus Finch fighting Sauron, which is quite Saruman. Yeah, that's very sorry, true. Or fighting Count Dooku. That's very true. Yeah. yeah, and it's not a bad little sword fight, actually. No, um, it's, in, it's good. Yeah, it's, a great it's the only scene. it's the only um, principal one where Peck does actually go one on one with someone with a sword. Actually, for yes. a swashbuckler, there isn't a lot of uh, swashbuckling. Swashbuckling? No, there's really not. Yeah, but you don't miss it. Um, mm. There's one that you may have missed when it comes to cast, which you, I know you'll you'll like to hear about. Um, this was actually the theatrical film debut of Jack Watson. Oh gosh, really? Yeah, it was. So in the briefing, uh, weather aboard uh, Admiral Layton's uh, flagship, and they're at a conference with the other captains, and they're talking about what they're going to do to capture these French uh, blockade runners. Um, the captain who speaks up, Captain Sylvester. That's Jack Watson. That's a very young Jack Watson. I love it. That's fantastic. Yeah. I didn't even know it was great? him. Wow. What amazing. Just about, you never get like a full um, shot of his face because he's looking at the map on the table, the charts. Um, but he does, he, you, you can see the outline of his of his, um, of his his jaw and his, his nose and he's quite recognisable. This is very first film role. Wow. Brilliant. So this week for retro reviews, me and Matt did a little bit of a, um, a verses, if you will. So we thought <laughs> yeah. it'd be interesting because obviously th- this is a film made by Warner Brothers, made by the Hollywood uh, studio system of the fifties, but obviously about a British uh, beloved character made in Britain, made in at uh, Teddington Studios and uh, and a, a number of actual locations. Portsmouth is a really nice little yeah. cameo from HMS Victory. So Matt's found a review from America, and I've got a review from from Britain. Yeah, do you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. I've got a review from the New York Times um, from 14th September, 1951. It begins, man the braces. Likewise, port your helms and lay your blinking bowsprits as close to the wind as they will lie. For Captain Horatio Hornblower is pacing the quarterdeck on the music hall screen. And unless you are well braced and close hauled, he may blast your top masts away. Don't look for any thrills or fancies of a literate or artistic sort in this bright colored sea adventure picture which Warners have been inspired to make, let us say, as a free adaptation of the populist stories by C.S. Forrester. Mr. Walsh and Warners have put a plenty of action on screen with the help of Mr. Peck and a manly cast. It may be a conventional action, routine in pattern and obviously contrived, with less flavour of Forrester's fiction in it than the workshops of Hollywood. This picture is actually filmed in England, but it isn't apparent in its air. However, it should please all those mateys whom like the boom of cannon and the swish of swords, a portion of rum all round. They had fun with that one, didn't they? They did, didn't they? Yeah. So my review, I know from doing some looking at the production of the movie, a lot of media outlets, a lot of newspapers and, and, and film magazines were 
you know, they were taking bets whether um, Peck and the American cast they could pull it off. off. Right. Yeah. So this review comes from the Daily Mirror from Friday, April 13th, 1951. The title is Yo Ho Ho, Gregory Pulls It Off. Gregory Peck came from Hollywood to play a British sea captain of the Nelson School in a film that cost millions, and he has done a first-class job in Captain Horatio Hornblower, RN. As a daredevil skipper of a lone English frigate of Napoleonic days who didn't care two hoots for the enemy or the Admiralty, but his American co-star, Virginia Mayo, is not convincing as a sister of the Iron Duke. This story is mainly about Hornblower's adventures with more powerful French and Spanish naval units in the days when Napoleon was running wild in Europe. There is a double-crossing Spanish dictator and a romantic interlude with the Duke Wellington's sister, but our hero takes them in our stride. The sea fights between the great sailing ships are superbly staged and the tropical settings are so good that few will realise much of the Spanish main was manufactured at Denham and matched in with genuine Mediterranean sea shots. Verdict, a fresh breeze from the Spanish main. Ah, wow, okay. Both positive. They, they just didn't like Mayo very much, which I think is a bit mean. She's fine. I, I don't I don't have any issue with um, the portrayal. No, no. They're good reviews. Um I mean, interestingly, it, it did make 5.3 at the box office and it was uh, the studio's most expensive film of the year, but it was also their most popular. Big earner, like, for the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's interesting that both sort of highlighted the um, the American studio English production side of things. It's a it's an interesting mashup. And I like the part in, in the New York Times review where it says the picture was actually filmed in England but it isn't apparent in its air, which I don't know whether that's true. I I know that a lot of the cast are American. You've got um, Peck, who is American. You've got uh, Beatty, who's Canadian. Um, Mayo's American. American. Yeah. But you've, you've got um, a supporting cast, which is predominantly British. Um, Yeah. And it, I don't know. I don't, I don't get a vibe where it's overly American. No, I don't. We're not in a we're not in an objective bearer situation. That's for sure. No, we're not. No, I mean Peck's accent is all over the shop, but I don't think he's trying to really hide it. It's transatlantic, isn't it? It's that mid-Atlantic. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, he's not trying to hide it. I don't think it didn't really bother me that they weren't really clipped. You know, there's no one going, "Oh, hello, hello, Hornblower, how are you?" You know, there's no one doing no. that because it'd be hokey. It'd be weird. The crew are the rough and tumble. You've got James Robertson Justice and his. And his mate giving it that, oh, are you right, mate? I'm a sailor from the 1800s. Hey, you know, give it a bit of Treasure <laughs> Island pirate vibe. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it, everyone pays off each other. And you've got Stan Baker's giving you your clipped officer type, you know, NCO yeah, type the bosun. character. As a bosun, yeah. yeah. He's the authoritarian. He's exactly, yeah. short and sharp, isn't he? Yeah, I know what you mean. Hello, I'm Al Murray, and you're listening to Fighting on Film, the world's number one war film podcast. You're the Hornblower expert, so I think you were going to tell us about what books that the movie pulls from. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far as to call myself an expert, but yeah, um, it's interesting because it pulls from three, as I mentioned, distinct books. Uh, the first half of the movie uh, that deals with El Supremo and the Lydia travels uh, 10 months at sea without sighting land, because by the time they are about to make landfall, they are on their last couple of days worth of water run out of line the doctor the surgeon's making treatises to to hornblow he's, he's saying you need to to head for shore and the men are going down with scurvy and officers can get it too you know these lads are crying out for some minute mate <laughs> they need a brew 
So yeah, they've been at sea for like nine, ten months, and um, they're aboard this little frigate, the Lydia, um, like a twenty-four gunner, and they're tasked with taking arms and, and supplies to uh, what they hope will be an ally in South America to disrupt the Spanish, because at that point in the war, uh, Spain is France's ally, uh, Napoleon's France, and Spain had a very large navy and a very large army at that point, and um, the Peninsula campaign was ongoing, and Britain needed a little bit of a distraction. Is is the uh, the idea of the movie and of the book as well, actually? Um, so they they head down to um, around the Horn and back up to where El Supremo is, um, and they meet up. and They he talks about uh, bending El Salvador and and conquering the you know the Americas from Spain, which had a, a stranglehold over Central and South America at that point. And that's all dealt with in uh, the Happy Return or Beat to Quarters, uh, which is the first of the three uh, novels, which I think is set in about 1808. That's the first half of the film. So uh, there's a French ship of the line, which is coming to, to down El Supremo's uprising. Hornblow gets the better of them in a, in a brilliant night action where he, he um, they sneak aboard the ship and overpower the crew. And Hornblow, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. In a magnanimous gesture, he thinks that the best thing to do um, will be to, to gift the ship, the Natividad 60 Gunner, to El Supremo um, for his campaign to capture the South, you know, yeah. South America. And then, oh no, they're met by a Spanish lugger, a little, a little boat from um, Panama. And aboard it is Lady Barbara and a Spanish uh, captain. And he's like, oh no, senor, thank God I found you before you ran into our. 60 gunner ship of the line that would yeah, blow exactly, you out of the yeah. water and he's, he's like oh, oh no you are joking when you say you've captured him um not the not the best um spanish portrayal um no. but a little bit <laughs> caricaturish then hornblower realizes oh shit i'm gonna have to actually go and recapture the natividad um because spain and britain are now allies napoleon has, has removed the spanish king from the throne and, and put his own uh, brother on the, on, the, on the Spanish throne. That's it. So um, they, they have to go and stop the ravaging of, of South America by El Supremo now. And then we get the, the, the film's first big sea battle, don't we? And it's, it's, it's money for the, for the period. It's great. Yeah. But we'll talk about these oh. scenes in a bit more detail later on. Feast for the eyes, that. So the second half of the film uh, deals with Hornblower's promotion. Uh, so yes. he's promoted and, and given a, uh, 
I think it's a second rate, 74 grand. Do you get annoyed when they, when that lad, that guy who Wellesley was like, well, uh, Lady Wellesley was meant to be marrying, when he bollocked Hornblower doing stuff out in the field? And I'm like, but you weren't fucking there. And yeah, he's no. like, oh, how are you? If you'd been dis- under my command, I yeah. wouldn't have had it. And all it's this, like, yeah. how are you to disobey the orders of the Navy? He's like, you weren't, you didn't know, you weren't there. Like, it's yeah. the classic, like, what's he going to do? Like, makes sink his whole ship because he, He's like more proud. Like, come on. I, think. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the thing that. there is they're yeah. saying it what to be an abrasive character, aren't they? And someone that you go, oh no, Lady Barbara's gonna marry this guy. Yeah, not that. Oh he, no. He was mean you know? to Hornblower. Yeah. Yeah, this guy's not pleasant. He's not as yeah, nice exactly. as Hornblower. Um, so yeah, though, um, he's promoted, uh, given the 74 gun uh ship of the line, and he's on the uh the uh, the blockade of of uh, the Spanish, uh, the French ports, and that's dealt with in uh, the second of the novels that they they took over, which was a ship of the line um, that that Warner Brothers picked up. That book ends with the uh, there's a raid on a French port where Hornblower successfully dismasts four French ships of the line on his own. But long story short, that part of the film is taken from the novel uh, Ship of the Line. And then there's a third novel, which is sort of the epilogue of the movie. Um, where the ending is wrapped up enormously fast. You're a little bit too quickly. You want it, you want a little bit more of that adventure. And you do get that in the book. So in the book, they're on the run for months and months. Whereas in the film, so to backtrack a little bit there, the Sutherland sinks in the harbour and the, the ship's crew are captured. And Hornblower is going to be sent to Paris to be tried as a pirate. Uh, but they escape on the way. There's uh, himself, Quist, and um, uh, Lieutenant Bush. They're on the run. And that part of the film is taken from Flying Colors, which is deals with a much longer sequence of that. And it's it's sort of truncated down. Okay. But yeah, it, it's really interesting the way that Forrester took those three books, which are mm. meaty, meaty books. Because it, feel, it feels really cohesive. Like, it does, music. yeah. It was a and, really... And, well-paced film I, I i know like i'm famous on the podcast being like oh, i didn't like it it was too long but i never <laughs> felt like this one was overstaying its welcome at all yeah it's about an hour and 50 55 something like that there's a, a clear um demarcation between that yeah. first story where they're in the south um south america and then they're in uh on the blockade mm. and then there's that little bit at the end where they're, they're on the run and uh in, in france and they escape on the Witch of Endor, which is a, a little ship they capture back, re- recapture. So I think that might bring us into the Annie Tally. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. So I think it's funny. The first, In the start of the show, in the intro every week, we go... From the days of chivalry and swords to the Normandy landings, this is the first movie we've done that has had swords in it. Yes, yes, it is. I had to think <laughs> about that, but yes, it is. It took us so long. I know we had someone on the Twitter the other day. Um, I forget who it was. It was like, when are we going to get some of that some of that chivalry and swords? You promised us, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh wait a minute, this one's got swords in it. Um, but there's plenty in this. There's there's swords. Yes. Um, there's swords and there's a bit of chivalry. Um, but yeah, so what stood out for you on this one, Rob? Yeah, this one's quite interesting for me because I'm not 
the biggest expert when it comes to weapons and uniforms and firearms of the Napoleonic era. But from what I've looked up, it all seemed pretty okay. I liked mm. the having the Royal Marines on board. That was quite good. And obviously they, they've got their brown best, they've got their their red, their red uniforms. So it's it it is a nice little juxtaposed to the the, the blue of the navy, which I quite like. You very rarely see the Marines. They're present. Um, the the film opens with a, a punishment parade. That's it. You see you see them a little bit there, and there's a few sentries dotted about, mm. and they're in the, they're in those uh, boarding actions in the background. But yeah, they they are f- a focal point. Um, but yeah, as you say, their uniform's quite good, um, which mm. is surprising for the period. Like, I, the uniforms are one of the things that stand out with this film. Yeah, they so do. they're not they're not completely accurate and spot on to what we now know is you know the correct yeah. uniform of the period but the within that that um that realm of in the spirit and correct yes. enough where um, they're faithful recreations they are that they they they're great they're great efforts because i like how the uniforms are worn they're wearing sea-worn threadbare yes. uh, tunics um the gold braid on on homeblower's uniforms uh tarnished and, and dark it's n- they're not just stood there in what we'd consider full dress uniform no yeah and everything's like sun bleached as well i really like that exactly as it would yeah. be yeah of course and that's yeah. a really interesting little um attempt to to give it some of that realism which comes over in, mm. in forrester's books Forrester's books are nowhere near on the level. This might be travesty for for some people listening. Um, aren't they? Don't go to the minutiae of detail that say Patrick O'Brien's later Aubrey books do. But yeah, the the, the Aubrey books go into a lot of detail about yes. seamanship and how ships move and how they work and how crews work them. Um, which Forrester's books do. Um, and Forrester obviously had a clear love for the sea. Even so, that 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 love and authenticity comes through from the material that they're working with. Yeah. So the, the bleach jackets and such change when they get to the, you know, they get home because yeah, they've they been on a nine month voyage at that point. Of course. And, it, and it's yeah. 11 months, maybe God, I don't know, like 18 months all, all mm. the way around. So they're, they're wearing more or less the same uniforms they've had on for like almost a year. And then when they get back to Britain, they get slightly different uniforms. They're, they're actually a bit closer to what was actually worn around 1808-1809 um one of the things that falls down a little bit is um pecs wearing a tricorn which okay. is a three-peaked cap or hat um and that they'd fallen a little bit out of fashion they were being replaced by bicorns at that point um you know right. fore and after okay i get it otherwise yeah, yeah. um which is what the lieutenants are wearing um mm. But the the midshipman's wearing the right uniform. He even has a deck rather than a sword, which is correct. Um, Hornblower is seen with a what's known as a spadroon, which is a straight sword. Mm-hmm. Um, Royal Navy officer swords were a little bit of discretion at this point, so it it varied between like hangers, which are like thicker short swords, to uh, slightly curved, almost saber-like swords. But in this period, spadroons were quite popular. And then I think in eighteen oh. 8, 1809, they, they finally standardised on one that was a straight sword, but it had like a, a sabre hilt, okay. um, which, you know, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But yeah. I like the bit um, where um, 
they go to raid these the I can never say the name of that ship. Natividad. Natividad. Um I want to say Navidad like Christmas in Spanish. Um the, <laughs> the Natividad um uh, the ship when they go and raid it, where they've got the Royal Marines giving all the, the boarding party, all the cutlasses and the, the flintlocks yeah. and stuff. I really like that. That's a nice little touch. Um it is. And see it. The, the the cutlasses and, and those uh sea service flintlock pistols look correct yeah they do yeah um they look like the right pattern and and, and type but you don't see them up close uh yeah. they're not it's not a film that focuses on the weapons it's more of a no. the way no, the way that guy green really, has yeah, shot right. it yeah those those hand-to-hand shipboarding sequences they're more um they're more of a a wide angle you they're get to spectacle. see they're the scale like a, yeah scale yeah. shot spectacle Absolutely. shot I mean, there's an honorable mention from me bit of a funny one but there's a bit of where James Robertson Justice has to knock out a French officer, a French captain, and he absolutely mm. mullers this lad with a chair leg. <laughs> yeah, he breaks the, the table. table. The table, like, just... <laughs> I just like, goes down that hard. The table, like, splits into... <laughs> yeah. Hornblower's subtly, like, you know, knock him out, like, gives a subtle nod. And Robertson Justice just... He chose violence that morning. For a film that isn't meant to be violent, I think there are some quite shocking moments where... You know, riggings falling on men. You've got mm. cannons falling on people. Obviously, they're you know they're not real. They're made of polystyrene or they're made of like you know wood Pastor or, Paris, or Paris cast molds. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you know, you spend disbelief in the movie. Think, like that, that brass cannons on that guy's leg. You know, they're, they're crushed to death, sort of thing. It's you, yeah. You, well, that's exactly. that's one of the things that I really love about the film is that um, effort to to give some of the carnage of naval battles because yeah, they exactly, were yeah. horrific things to fight oh, in. God, yeah. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute in fave scenes, mm. I'm sure. But yeah, and um, one of the last things that stood out to me is that um, during the escape, uh, Quist has put the, the the wheel of the carriage which is taking them to Paris to be tried for pirates on badly, and it comes off again. And this is their chance to um, overpower the French and escape, mm. yeah. And uh, Lieutenant Bush jumps on the back of a French officer on a horse and and pulls him off. Um, and there's a struggle, and he's about to get uh, run through by the officer's sword. Yeah. And Hornblower takes a, like a, a thirty yard shot with with a with a um, a French cavalry uh, flintlock pistol, which I think looks like if if you know your French cavalry pistols, I think it's a Model Thirteen. Well, I'm always happy to be corrected on that. Um, but there's a great little close-up of, of uh, when when Peck does this, like 30-yard, almost straight from the gunfighter, where he just oh, yeah. shoots from the hip. Just saves Bush's life. It's a great little scene. Um, there's, there's, there's not a lot of specifics to talk about in this, in terms of Ali, but it's it's a good-looking film, got to be said. It is, very. So I think that probably brings us neatly on to favourite scenes. And I think... I think if, you, if you've seen this movie before or you, or you know me in that very well... We can burst in to talk about them. You'll know what we've chosen. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So I think this one's going to be a bit of a joint effort as well, isn't it? Where I think we're going to talk about... Yes, it is. Like last week. It's the the sea battles. My favourite scene um, is the port raid uh, the, in the last act of the movie. Right. I think it's meant to be La Rochelle, um, 
which is the major French um, port in Biscay, the Bay of Biscay, mm-hmm. where the the four French ship of the line of the they've stopped to take on supplies because the the whole crux is that they're going to go and supply uh, the French army, which is going to outflank the Duke of Wellington, who who isn't yet the Duke of Wellington, uh, in in Spain during the Peninsular War. Um, but Hornblower manages to bottle them up in in the harbour, and he he they sail straight into the harbour. They a little bit no of subterfuge, no fucks given. Yeah, a little bit of subterfuge with a, a signal that they've learned from a, a captured brig. Um, and they slip past the fort's guns, uprruns the, the the British naval ensign, and Hornblower just pounds these four French ships, rakes them stem to stem. Uh, dismasts them. Absolute chaos on board. There's a great little um, sequence of you know the returning fire. The fort opens up. Some epic model work comes in. Really nice. Another thing that I didn't forgot to mention in the alley time, which kind of plays into this, is all those scenes where you see guys setting up the flintlocks on the cannons. Yeah, so nice. Yeah, that's a really cool little inclusion. Really nice. Because mm. in so many of the earlier swashbuckling films, it's just they take like a giant flaming torch <laughs> yeah, like, and just slap yeah, it on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in reality, at that point in, in the 19th century, the Royal Navy was using um, little uh, flintlocks. Which flint. Were flint, yeah. It's, it's like you would see on a brown bess or anything else. They would load the gun from the muzzle, uh, prime it with powder, and then reseat the lock. And then they would attach like a lanyard that would, the, they would pull. Yeah. And once they pull it, that, that fires the gun. And you see guys actually doing that. So they've obviously these extras have learned the drills and it's a nice, it's a really nice piece of attention to detail because they could have just had like, I don't know, like pits of string that just pulled off like a nail or something. Just yeah, exactly, that yeah. You wouldn't even notice, but it's a nice little inclusion. The model work is amazing and it just, and it, it just, just comes out. So there's this, this great little fort that's blasting away at the, mm. the, the Sutherland Hornblow ship. There's a town in the background, which is like a really nice matte painting that they've done. Um, yeah. And it just, it just feels very authentic. It looks quite realistic, which is unusual for, you know, you know, um, excuse me, which is unusual for uh, portrayals of, you know, these kind of sea battles in this period. It's hard to make models look realistic. It does. I know. I think it was the, um, the Hispaniola from the from Treasure Island was used for the Lydia. Yeah, I, so I, I, you sent me a really interesting little um, puff piece that was printed bef- as the film was coming out, I think. And it, it talks about how uh, they'd made a replica for the Lydia based on plans for HMS Ariel, which was a 19th century uh, frigate. Other sources then say, no, it was the Hispaniola, which was used in Treasure Island the year before, uh, redressed. Either way, apparently, they mounted it on hydraulics to make it pitch in your. That's incredible. Which is insane. Yeah. That's incredible for 1950-51. And there's a, there's a photo, I think Matt will put it up on the Twitter if you, if you can dig it out. But it's a photo of the, of the set there of them um, shooting. Um, I think it's when they shot on the Victory. But it's really nice. You can see the scale of, of the of the production. It's really like something. Yeah, that's the Victory's quarter deck, and yeah. it's great that they that they were able to do that because they go aboard to see. I think it's the um, the, the rear admiral, and there's a lovely little establishing shot that doesn't quite show the base of Victory. No, nope. <laughs> where you yeah. would know that it's in dry dock, 
Um, but it just you, you, your mind kind of assumes everyone's shot from the shoulder upwards, <laughs> so you could just yeah. set the C behind the, in that kind the, of the shoulder of HMS Victory upwards. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Luckily, at that point, she started her masts and, yeah. and rigging. I think mm. um, your mind just goes, "Oh, she's she's in, in port at Portsmouth." Fantastic! Like for 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 naval files, it's just a what a what what a treat. As 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 well, I think that the the, the sea battles are the main draw of the movie. You know, mm. they just they just are. It's the miniature ships going sailing around um, each other. You know, it's them getting broadside so they can fire all their cannons. But it, it's all that. But it's there's small things as well. That I think just give it that that extra level of authenticity or, or sort of mm. like pseudo authenticity, perhaps. But when ships are firing at each other, you've got like massive splinters of wood like flying off of the ships. You've got masts coming down, falling on everybody. You've got the, the chaos of the of the what, what do you call a, a, a gun deck? Is that what you call it? Yeah. Right? You've got the chaos of the gun deck where men are literally falling over each other as as as, as cannonade comes in and and that they're trying to reload the, the gun barrels. You've you've got you know, the, the, the officers trying to keep them all in check. You've, you've got Hornblower on the top trying to stay stoic and command everybody and, <laughs> yeah. and just give like a one word command, like bring up our side, you know, and it's just like, okay, sir. You know, it's like, it's all he does sort of thing. Well, there's nuance in that as well. So in that first battle where they're going to recapture the, the Tibidad and El Supremo is not a sailor, he's inexperienced no. and he's, They've crowded on all of the sail, and there's lots of nice little bits of exposition from you know the. Um, uh, there's lots of nice little bits of exposition from Lieutenant Bush and the other other um, men on the quarterdeck. Where, my God, they've they've their gun ports are under the water because they've put so much sail on, and at the last minute he's able to sort of flick underneath their bow and, and rake her, which in naval terms is like his peak maneuver. Mullers, like if Mullers, you can rake a ship from either stem or stern, right? Then you're in, you're in, you're in there. It's a, it's a good. It's, it's showing it's, Hornblower as being the, the supremo man of yeah. It's, it's a man of the match brigade. move on that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> MVP clutch yeah, play, as the Americans would say. Yeah. By God, Hornblower from the top rope. <laughs> By God. <laughs> but. You know, I also like. I like the fact that the they show fairly accurate gun recoil. Yes, it is actually. The guns don't just like bounce up and down. No, they don't. They, they actually go backwards and forwards, and it yeah. shows men running them out and pulling mm. them in to load them. I quite like the bit in the the the, the port battle where they're fighting all those French ships of the line, mm-hmm. and James Robertson Justice and a few of the other chaps rig up a cannon to to put a, a shot right through the the hull of the. Is it the Sutherland? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they're they're being pounded and they've lost steering and and yeah, they can't get out. They can't. Get out the, they can't they yeah. are. They yeah. They can't. <laughs> they can't get out of the port. Yeah. So Hornblower's like, we'll sink her where she's going to do some good. So they That's put it. her right in the middle of the mouth of the harbour, and then he's like, help me rig up a um a gun. Again, Which I think yeah. really it would have it would have been made more sense if he'd done that on the lower gun deck because he's going to have to go through like three decks at that point to get to the keel. Yeah, um, but, but we'll let them off. It's Sorry. you know, it's a film. Um, but yeah, that's a great bit where they're, they're stacking all the the bits of wreckage great. to it. get the gun to elevate enough and to then shoot straight through twist the hole. Goes to pull the pull the rope and uh, to fire the gun and and, and Hornblower says, "If you don't mind, Quist," and he just like does it himself. So good. It's like really, 
you know, Peck's like the, doing for me, like Peck's doing like a ballet in between all the chaos in the way that he's commanding mm, his ship. The he's choreography always, of those battles is something yeah, else. Like he's always one step away from being crushed by a bit of um, rigging or yeah. being hit by a, a splinter, but he just sort of he swayed through it all. It's like he's just sort of like ghosting through it. It's it's, it's really nice to see like the way they. I don't know whether it's intentional or not, because I know that, that Walsh didn't really... Walsh was a real action man. He didn't really care about the sort yeah, of the nuances yeah. of people's performances. But you know, whether that's Peck himself reading, of reading, having read the books or, you know, just, just knowing what to do, but being a sort of actor that he is, I really like seeing Peck in that environment. It's just really nice to, to watch him at work. Yeah, and there's that one bit where he does get clobbered by some falling rigging. Mm. And he comes out proper proper stoic, doesn't he? He's like... yeah. Get back to work. Get back <laughs> to pulling, work. Like a ton of rigging off him. But I, I love those scenes. The carnage on the gun deck, as you say, is great. I mean, so good. there's a number of sections where there's chaps being uh, thrown underneath guns and there's that Lieutenant Gerard is is shouting, clear away the, the, the wreckage, remount that gun, run out of the guns. It's great. There's lots of like very accurate, well, I wouldn't say super super accurate but authentic yeah authentic um royal navy experts of the period can can definitely chime in on that one but i think it's probably the best on-screen depiction of the napoleonic era royal navy until master and commander well yeah it has to be doesn't it yeah i think so i think that goes next level yes Uh, that's a that's a very authentic feeling accurate looking movie um Mm. And it, it does the period a lot of justice. But I think this one hits way over what you would expect from a movie of this period in terms of attempt at authenticity. For going into final thoughts now, I think, yeah, like I was blown away. Like not having seen a, a hornblower. Just like the Sutherland's masts. <laughs> yeah, I was, blo- I was blown away like rigging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I was really impressed because I, I don't, these sort of movies, they don't get made anymore. They don't make swashbucklers anymore. They don't make these sort of films anymore. No, I wish they would. I would I would love to see more adaptations of Hornblower and more adaptations of um Patrick O'Brien's books, the, the Aubrey books. I know I know what I know there's another Master and Commander film rumoured. Yes, it's been rumoured, hasn't I, it? It's not been done. I hope yet. it comes off. I do. Um it's just got a bit of money, isn't it, really? Because he's cost it a lot is, of that's money. it. That's it. Yeah. But I, I was really pleasantly surprised. It was a. I'm, I'm pleased that the Patreon, the Patreon picked it. I was really looking forward to seeing it, sort of tongue in cheek. I thought it I've was bigged it be, up. Yeah, because Matt had bigged I it thought, up so I much. I did worry. I did worry that I'd bigged it up so much to Rob over the like months and years we've been doing this now. I was like, Rob, yeah. we really need to do Hornblower because it's such a great movie. It's like you'll love it. It's great. Yeah. Um, and it, I, I loved I, it. I, I thought, I thought you'd come back great. and go, like, hey, it was alright. Yeah. No, no. Well, I'm I, glad I, you liked it. To sort of go to, you know, as I said earlier, I thought it was really well paced. It, Raoul Walsh makes a, I know Raoul Walsh makes a good action film. Objective Burma is, is up there, and they dive with their boots on. You know, he he knows what he's doing. You know, Walsh is like a, a proper unsung hero of that of that era of action movie era. Um, you know, we've got Peck he, coming into his prime. You know, he's only 35, 36 when they film it, so it, it's one of his earlier roles. It, the, sea, the sea battles are just something to be admired. You know, they mm. really are. They really hold up really well, and it, it's one of those technicolor sort of. I call them technicolor technicolor glory films because it's it's just in that era of like 
It's beautiful. Oh, it's just something about it, and I, I thoroughly loved it. I really did. Yeah, Guy Green's cinematography elevates it. Mm, yeah. The model work, as we've gushed, is is incredibly good for yeah. And it handles that romantic subplot quite well, actually. I didn't get bored. Yeah, it it doesn't overdo it. It doesn't force it to be something that it isn't because you've got to remember that the Hornblower character himself isn't a romantic character. He's Mm -hmm. a very awkward man. He's very stoic. He's very uh, reserved. It it handles it quite well. And I think they they play off each other quite quite believably. And I I think the supporting cast in general is, is quite good. Really? I really enjoy uh, James Robinson Justice's Quist. I'm so glad it was it was it's finally won a yes. supporting cast vote. Um and I'm so glad that you found it enjoyable because it, that would have I been love those it, would have, it would have mortified me if you got it was it was crap. It was a, it was I, I found it. I mean that's the word. It was fun. I found it, it was a fun film to watch. Yeah. It really was. And I'd recommend it if you can find it out there to any of the listeners. So, so it's a great like Saturday Sunday afternoon movie. Yeah, proper, like it, just a proper, yeah. Yeah, it's complete harmless fun, I think, really. Unless you're uh, Napoleon. Yeah, or, or a Spanish. Although one thing it, the one thing it does do is, is assume a lot of knowledge about the Napoleonic Wars. 100%, yeah. Uh, there was bits where I was thinking, okay, so like, where are we now? What are we doing? Why is this important? But it's, <laughs> it's just, it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> it's okay. There's a, there's an, a little yeah. bit of exposition at the beginning, but not a lot. And then... Um, you're kind of like, oh yeah, you have to know what's going on in the the, the Napoleonic War right now. I loved it. So yeah, thanks for the thanks to the Patreons again for picking another absolute cracker with a Patreon pick. I'll have another one of those next month. Another one next month, yeah, with four more films for your uh, voting pleasure. As always, like, share, subscribe, and um, leave us some written reviews. We, we'd love to read them if you fancy giving us a rating on. You can give us a rating on Spotify now or iTunes. We'd, we'd love to read them. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.